I want to tonight to reflect on the cross from the perspective of Peter. I've always had a love for Peter. He's second to Jesus. He's my favorite person in the Gospels. He's just such a character. He seemed to have a real special place in Jesus' heart, too. He was a real natural-born leader. He just took the lead on things. He was always the first to speak, always the, often before thinking he would speak. He was the first to act, sometimes without thinking. He was bold. He was brave, maybe to a fault. He was a person of extremes, as leaders sometimes are. Uh, there's an episode in Matthew 16 where Jesus says, Who do people say that I am? And, and Peter says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are blessed. You are blessed because that's a revelation from my Father in heaven. But then Jesus starts talking about his sufferings and his need to go to Jerusalem and to get crucified. And Peter would have none of that. That's Peter. He'll argue with the Savior. He doesn't care. He says, that's not going to happen. We're not going to let that happen. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So he goes from being the blessed one who reveals God to being Satan in the span of about four verses. This is a guy of extremes. When he got it right, he was really, really right. But when he got it wrong, he was really, really wrong. I want to start tonight by by looking at Peter's greatest failure. It happens to be a failure that Jesus had predicted. Just after the Last Supper, just as they were preparing to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. We read this in Matthew 26. Then Jesus told them, This very night, you, referring to you, you disciples, you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have arisen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Here comes Peter again, though. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Jesus says, Not only will you fall away, He says, I'm going to tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter Never to buckle in an argument, says, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Peter was always the one who would object when when Jesus would talk about suffering. He would just get in Jesus' face. It happened several times uh, throughout the Gospels. And the reason is because Peter had the very typical view of the Messiah. Among Jews at that time, the standard view was that the Messiah was going to come strong He's going to be a militant political ruler, and he was going to vanquish Israel's enemies and and, and resurrect Israel to be a sovereign nation once again. He wanted a Messiah who would win. As is typical of fallen human beings, Peter wanted a Messiah in his own image, and therefore a God in his own image. A, A Messiah and a God who would basically do on their own accord what Peter wanted them to do. It's, it's true of the history of fallen humanity. We've always wanted our gods and our saviors uh, to reflect us, to reflect our interests, to be on board with our agendas. And so we make gods and saviors after our own image. So Peter would have nothing to do with this suffering Messiah. He wanted a, a Messiah who won. And he was sure that, that that's what Jesus was, was going to do. So this last time when Jesus mentions suffering... Peter gets in his face once again. We'll not let it happen. Even if I have to die for you, I I will not let this happen. So Jesus responds by saying, Peter, three times. Before morning comes, you'll deny me three times. Uh, You know, Peter was sincere when he said, I would die for you. And you can see that in the garden. 
as, as, as they're coming to arrest Jesus, Peter's the one, here he goes again, brings out the sword and swings it at the guard and cuts off the guy's ear. So Jesus once again has to rebuke Peter. Say, put that sword away. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And then he teaches Peter how you do warfare in the kingdom. You do it not by wielding swords against your enemies. You do it by healing your enemies. And so he heals the guard's ear, restates it, and puts it back on, on, on his face. Well, they arrest Jesus. And here's where I think the turning point with Peter comes. They arrest Jesus. And I, I don't think he, he could believe that. I, I think when he took out that sword, he was assuming that he was going to kind of like force Jesus' hand. Jesus needed an opportunity to start showing his miraculous stuff. This miracle-working militant Messiah, oh, he's, he's going he's to rise up one of these moments. And so when he takes out that sword, I think he thought he was you know, leading the charge with Jesus. But now Jesus gets arrested. This is unthinkable. And, and Peter would be thinking, was he serious when he talked about all that suffering stuff? Is he going to win? He can do miracles. He can get out of this. What is he doing letting himself get arrested and killed? But all the disciples flee, except Peter, he's still got some courage in him. He turns back, and from a distance, he follows Jesus. Maybe he's thinking, maybe at the in the 11th hour, at the last moment, he's going he's, he's to pull a miracle out of his hat, and he's going he's gonna to then do what, what a, a, a Messiah should do. So he's following from a distance. And it's in that context that three people notice him. Hey, weren't you with the Messiah? You, you got that Galilean accent. Surely you were with that Messiah, and, or with that man in there. And Peter, all three times, denounces him. He says, I don't know the man. In Matthew, it says he took an oath, saying, I don't know the man. He's scared. If he says he knew him, then what happens, what's happening to Jesus? Well, that could happen to him. So he denies that he knows the Lord. And raises this question. How did we get from this bold and courageous Peter, who just several hours ago was willing to die for Jesus and took out a sword to prove it, to this cowardly Peter? The courageous Peter, a couple hours later, is a cowardly Peter. What happened? He petered out. <laughs> Couldn't help it. It just came to me. Now see, the answer to this is, is this. He no longer has his powerful, miracle-working military Messiah around. Peter's like you know, the little kid in, 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 in the school grounds who uh, feels really tough and will take on anybody as long as he's holding his big brother's hand. Uh, you can beat up anybody because he's got his big brother there. But the minute the big brother goes, the kid turns into a coward. As soon as Jesus gets arrested and his, his military view of the Messiah comes crumbling to the ground, well, Peter, it turns out, is not so courageous after all. Underneath that bravado, that false bravado, was a scared little boy. And so when he's asked about his identification with Jesus, he denies it. Now, see, God knew that once Peter's, God knows everything. He knows his character perfectly. And so he saw through the false bravado. God the Father knew that, that, that if this, his false view of this Messiah is taken away, and that Peter would, would just wither in fear like a, like a leaf in the desert. And then, then the Father reveals that to Jesus, and that's how Jesus can give this prophecy, this prediction about what Peter's going to do. And then just after the last denial, the moment he denies him for the third time, says he, he and Jesus caught eyes as they were leading Jesus out of the temple. And then Peter remembered the prophecy and began to wail, it says. Begin to wail. And imagine, enter into for a moment, the, the, the shame and the pain that he would have now, knowing that Jesus knew that he denied him. As Jesus is mocked by the crowd, 
Peter would know it. I should be there with him. I promised I would be there with him. But instead, I chose to save myself. And then as they're beating him and flogging him to a point where he can't even be recognized, and spitting on him, mocking him, and putting a crown of thorns on his head, making him carry the cross beam of the cross up the hill towards his own crucifixion, and then getting nine-inch spikes pounded into his wrist and into his ankles. Imagine the shame and the pain of Peter, who knows that he should have been there with him. He promised he'd be there with him. Instead, he chose to save himself. I have to imagine that Peter had some mixed emotions when, when he heard from the women that the grave was empty and that Jesus was risen. On the one hand, he loved this man. He, he, he sincerely loved this man and had given his life to this man. Maybe under the wrong pretenses, but he loved Jesus. And so he'd be happy that Jesus was alive. Could it possibly be true? On the other hand, it meant that he'd have to face Jesus again. And I imagine that just put some shame, if not fear, into him. What's interesting is that both Paul and Luke tell us that before Jesus appeared to all the disciples, he appeared to Simon first. He had a private meeting with Simon first. And it's like Jesus, when he got out of the grave, he's first, he first speaks to Mary Magdalene. She's there. The women were courageous enough to go check on the, on the tomb. The guys were still scared and, and hiding. So he meets with Mary Magdalene. But among the disciples, Jesus is saying, I, I first, before I do anything public, I've got to go talk to Peter and, and let him know it's okay. And we're not told anything about that, that, that meeting, what transpired there. But I imagine that Peter was just filled with joy, but also filled with shame. And yet there's not any hint anywhere that Peter had to grovel. In fact, the truth is that Jesus had prayed for his forgiveness before he even died. Up on the cross, when he prays, Father, forgive them, that includes, that, that includes Peter. And so I, I suspect that when, when they met together, Jesus just personalized that forgiveness. I, I suspect it would be like with the, the father of the prodigal son, where the, the prodigal son comes, and he's got a whole speech prepared, he's going to grovel and say how sorry he was. The father won't even hear it. He just bulldozes over him and says, it's done with. And so I can just imagine Peter weeping in his shame, but Jesus is hugging him and, and, and saying, it's okay, it's forgiven, it's done. You're my friend. We're cool. The one dialogue we have between Peter and Jesus after the resurrection is so, it's so rich when you read it from the perspective of his three denials. In, in, in John 21, we find Jesus asked Peter three times, coincidentally, not so coincidentally, three times he asks, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Three times, same question, same answer, same command. The third time, Peter gets a little irritated, as you would if someone keeps asking you the same question. But the third time, why, 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 why are you repeating this? Let's see, it makes perfect sense in light of the three denials. I think Jesus is just here replacing the three denials and locking in the three affirmations of love. This is what, Peter, I want you to remember, is, is that you, you now have vowed that you love me. And something has significantly changed here. And then, then Jesus gives this prophecy. It's a prophecy now, whereas the previous one was a prophecy about how Peter would deny him. This is a prophecy about how, how Peter will be faithful to him, even to the point of death. He says, very truly I tell you, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. And someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And then John adds, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then Jesus said to him, follow me. Follow me to the cross. We know from church history that Peter was, in fact, crucified just like Jesus was. He was 
later on tortured, and then crucified upside down. The Romans, just for their own twisted entertainment, would sometimes invent new positions to crucify people on, and so Peter got crucified upside down. But the prophecy was, was held true. And now we can begin to understand why Jesus gave that prophecy in the first place. It wasn't just some kind of parlor trick showing people that he could tell something about what's going to happen that night. No, there's a purpose to this. And the, the, the purpose was this. Peter had lived for himself. Peter had dressed himself. He had he'd gone wherever he wanted, done whatever he wanted. He had not relinquished lordship of his own life. life. Like all human beings, he avoided as much suffering as possible. Like all fallen human beings, we gained whatever advantage we can. So of course, Peter grabbed onto a view of the Messiah that was a benefit to him. And of course, when that view of the Messiah turned out to be wrong, he denied him. See, and God knew that if Peter was ever going to be the kind of leader that he needed him to be in this kingdom that Jesus was inaugurating, if he was ever going to be a Christ-like leader, he had to get rid of that old, militant, conquering view of the Messiah, and he had to get rid of this of Peter's idea of himself as the heroic right-hand man of the Messiah. He had to break the old Peter before he could give birth to this new Peter. And that's why Jesus gave the prophecy. It set up Peter to have his cowardly, sinful heart exposed to him, and to have his false view of the Messiah smashed to smithereens. So it was only after his grand failure, and after he had received mercy and forgiveness from Jesus, that uh, we, we find that Peter now can, can feed the sheep the way a, a Christian leader needs to feed the sheep, the way Jesus feeds the sheep, with self-sacrificial love. It's only now that Peter can understand what God is about and what the Messiah is about and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not about conquering in this world. It's about serving the way Jesus did in his life and the way Jesus did in his death. By, by, by facing his failure and receiving Christ's forgiveness, now Peter had the kind of character that would no longer deny Christ under any circumstances. Now he had the kind of character that would really follow Jesus, even to the point of death. So I, I want us now to just step back and look at this story of Peter and the cross and Jesus. And, and notice there's three things here that the cross does for Peter that the cross should do for all of us. The first thing is that just as with, with Peter, the cross smashed his self-serving view of God and self-serving view of the Messiah, the Messiah made in his own image. And so also the cross, we must let it smash all false views of God and of the Messiah and of salvation of ourselves that we have in our minds. Uh, the cross reveals that God is not anything like the gods that humans tend to make in their own image. Uh, it smashes all the views of the, the, the tyrannical, all-controlling God who, who, who rules with threats and, 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 and the lightning bolt throwing gods. It, it looks completely different than the nationalistic gods who are on our side but against their side, who's, who, who favor our group but, but, but crush our enemies, the groups of our enemies. It looks nothing like that. The cross reveals a God who from eternity to eternity, his, his love, a God who is love and love is defined by the cross, a God who from eternity to eternity has the kind of love who would die for a race of human beings who could deserve it less. Uh, God, the cross reveals that God is the kind of love that, that would uh, uh, choose to die for enemies rather than to crush them. The cross reveals that God, his very nature, his very essence, is the kind of love that rules not by coming over people and imposing force on them, but that comes under people, that washes their feet, that goes to Calvary to save them, that serves. The cross reveals that God's the kind of love that 
He's not the God of Israel anymore, any longer. He's just the God of Israel, the God of, of, of America, or the God of any other kind of particular country. He's the God of all people from every tribe and every tongue and every kingdom and every walk of life. And he's that God for them, despite their whatever sins they may have, whatever position they may have, whatever power they have or don't have, whatever ethnicity they have, whatever culture they're involved in. He's the God who unconditionally embraces all people at all times and works for their forgiveness and works to restore them and reconcile them to himself. See, one way you know that this is true is that no human being would ever come up with this picture of God. This is the opposite of what human beings have always thought about God. It's so radical that even many who profess faith in it still don't allow it to smash their false pictures of God. They just sort of let it tweak it a little bit. Tonight, I want to ask us to rid our mind of, let the cross rid our mind of all false views of God, whatever's lingering there, and, and to resolve in our heart that we will see this cross as the very heart of God, the very essence of God, the perfect expression of God's essence, as the author of Hebrews says. The second thing we see the cross doing is that it, it, it smashed Peter's false image of himself by making him face his sin. That's what that whole prophecy was about, to bring it, the, 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 the true fallen Peter out so Peter could see it, to face his sin. As with Peter, we have to realize that what happened to Jesus should have and would have happened to us if he hadn't stood in our place. Like Peter, we've all denied Christ. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all, in one way or another, in thought, word, or deed, we've betrayed Christ. But Scripture tells us that there's none that are really righteous, not even not one. And the punishment that he bore is the punishment that we deserved. That is the death consequences of sin. So when we see the horrific ugliness of the cross, we're really seeing the horrific ugliness of our own hearts. The darkness of the cross is the darkness of our hearts. The, ugly, the ugliness of the cross, the crucified Son of God, the innocent Son of God, the ugliness of that, it mirrors the ugliness of human sin. And as we see that, just as happened with Peter, that ought to break us. It ought to break us. We need to honestly see our sin and realize how far gone we would be without Christ. It's only to the degree that we appreciate the depth of our sin that we can ever begin to appreciate the unfathomable depths of God's grace when he forgives us our sin. If we have a shallow view of our sin, then we're going to have a shallow view of grace. It's no big deal. You know, God sort of overlooks it. It is a big deal, and it should break us to realize this. We so easily deceive ourselves. We, we can congratulate ourselves so easily. We can minimize the bad parts and maximize the good parts so well. We just don't have to think about it much. But once in a while, I'm sure you have walked with God for very long and found the cross breaks through, and you realize... Your desperate need for God's mercy. I don't know why this happened, but just about a month ago, uh, in the middle of the night, it, it all of a sudden, I'm praying, and it's just all of a sudden, oh, my eyes were opened to my desperate need of God's mercy. And I realized that after all this time walking with God, I'm still this broken. After all this time, 40 years almost walking with God, and, and I, I still have these massive shortcomings. 40 years walking with God, and I still have this much gulf between what I know is true and what I live is true. And it just makes you call out for God's mercy, because you realize that if God is not merciful, you are toast. It's, we're absolutely dependent on his mercy, and that's all about the cross. But see, that doesn't bring this, this, this self-loathing shame into my life. It just makes me love God all the more for loving me as I am. So you see who you really are. And 
to know that God loves you like that, that's just something about the beauty of God. And that's what begins to lead, lead us to bring about a change. This is the third thing the cross does for us. Peter also found forgiveness at the cross, and he was transformed by it. When Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, that included Peter, and included you, and included me. Peter wept for his sin, as we all should, but that weeping was turned to joy when Jesus embraced him and reinstated him and showered on him his love and his forgiveness. The same is true for every one of us. We should weep for our sins. There, there needs to be that if we're ever going to appreciate God's grace. But the purpose of the weeping is so that we can rejoice even harder when we see God's love for us in the midst of that and when we see that, that it, God's, it doesn't break us from God. And so tonight, I want us, I want, I want us to, to look at the cross and be broken. But I want us to look at the cross and be broken in order that we can Look at the cross and see, feel, and hear God's love and forgiveness, just as we are. We need to see the ugliness of the cross, which is the reflection of our sin, but we need to see the ugliness of the cross so that we can better see the beauty of the cross. Because you'll never see the beauty of the cross, which is God's love and forgiveness, except to the degree that you first see the ugliness of the cross. See, that's what transforms us from the inside out. That's That's what revolutionizes us. When a person begins to realize just how far gone they would be without the cross, well, then you can't help but be overwhelmed with gratitude for what God's done for you, crossing an infinite distance, becoming a human being, taking on our sin and condemnation, that we could be in right relationship with him. You can't help, it, he, as we're just saying, he wins our heart. So we trade our ashes in for beauty. Now he begins, he begins to make something beautiful out of our life. That love compels a change in us. You realize that we were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we, we see. We, we, we were... We were, we were at war with God, but now we are reconciled and forgiven. We were condemned, but now we're justified. We were enemies of God, but now we are declared his beloved bride, praise God. We were destined for a, a eternity, a eternal destruction without God, but now we're destined for eternal life and joy and peace with God. And that's not, it's all because of the cross. It's not because you could, you could earn it, you can't earn it, you can't deserve it, you can't merit it, you can't achieve it. You can only receive it, and that's what God gives us by means of the cross. It's the beauty of the cross. See, it is the most transforming force in the universe. The terrorizing, tyrannizing, all-controlling, threatening God may, may scare you to bring about behavioral change, but it will never change you from the inside out. And religion can throw all sorts of rules and mandates and laws and threats of hell at you. And the devil or some church could try to manipulate you by shame. And that will alter little your behaviors, but it will not change fundamentally who you are from the inside out. But when God's love gets in, when you really begin to see it and see just how great it is because you see how much you don't deserve it, well, that, that, folks, brings about a change. Only God's loving grace can reach all the way down to the deepest crevice of our heart. Only God's loving grace revealed on the cross can pierce the calluses of our heart and breathe new life into our soul. Only, only the, 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 the transforming power of God's love revealed on the cross can turn a sinner into a saint. Can, can turn a, a, a thief who steals into a, a kingdom person who just loves to give. I can turn a person who's just totally self-centered into someone who, who's other-oriented and, 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 and loves others. Only, only the love of the cross can take a person who would rather kill their enemies and make them into a person who would give their life for an enemy. Only the love that's revealed on the cross could take a cowardly Peter and turn him into a brave martyr, one who follows Jesus all the way to the cross. Paul says that we're compelled by the love of God in all that we do. 
It's when that love wells up on us out of gratitude for seeing how much he loves us that compels us to move, to bring about the change, to move out of the bondages, to heal the fragmented parts of us, to get increasingly like Jesus Christ in the way we think and speak and act. So to see the beauty of the cross, folks, we have to first deeply appreciate the ugliness of the cross, which is Jesus bearing our sin. We can only be transformed by the forgiving love of God on the cross if we see just how far gone we would be without him. So tonight, I want to first, I want us to let the cross break us in order to continue to give new life to us, to birth new life in us. Because this isn't a one-time deal. This is something we do throughout our walk. And so ask yourself this question, and Holy Spirit help us to be honest. What about, you, what about your life right now? Right now, did Jesus die for? Did Jesus have to die for? Otherwise, you'd be gone. In what way did you contribute to the ugliness of the cross? What is it about your life right now that nailed Jesus to the cross? What darkness is in you that the darkness of the cross expresses? We all have that. Holy Spirit helps to be honest. Maybe it's a sinful attitude or an action or a habit or a perversion. Maybe it's a, a sinful addiction or a wrong relationship or some other kind of bondage. What about you right now did Jesus die for? And I want us to see it in all of its darkness. Don't try to minimize it, uh, make excuses for it, sugarcoat it, just, just own it. Just own it. It is what it is. And what I'd like us to do then is, with those sheets that you have, I would like you to write down what comes to mind as you think about that. Write, write it down. And if you need to have a couple more pieces of paper, feel free to get that. Some of us could use an encyclopedia. Uh, and then I, I want you to, I, I, when, when you feel it's ready, to come up here and nail that to the cross. We'll have some hammers and some, some nails here. And, uh, and just nail it to the cross. And um, as you do that, realize that you're, you're confessing. You're, this is your confessing. You're confessing that this is, this is the reason why Jesus died. You're confessing that the ugliness of the cross, the horror of the innocent Son of God being crucified, was partly your doing, and this is why. He died for this. But you're also saying with that act that you're trusting the beauty of the cross. You're trusting that God loves you and forgives you just as you are right here and right now. As you nail this to the cross, you are nailing it to the cross where all that stands against us has been obliterated. And so as you nail that to the cross, I'd like us to envision and to hear, to sense, however you do this, Jesus saying to you, with your name, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. And see, when we hear you are forgiven, knowing the depth of our own darkness, that's what creates this gratitude and love. He wins our heart. And that's the love that compels us now to live for him. And so, right after hearing it is forgiven, also hear, ask God to fan the flame of love in your heart to give you the motivation, the compulsion you need to walk away from what you just nailed. It's already, it's, it's really not you. This is you operating out of this false old self. And so, ask God to give you that motivation, that love that makes you want to get right with him and to get this out of your life. That makes you realize that you're better than this now. This isn't you. That's the, that's the old you, not, not the real you. And if you don't want to get rid of it, and some people are afraid to pray that because they, they, they're not, they don't want to get rid of it. They can't imagine life without this, this, this pet thing in their life. Well, you know what? Nail that to the cross too. Because that's the deeper sin. And 
That's okay. If, if that's where you're at, the beautiful thing about God, and this is the beauty of the cross, is he meets us wherever we're at. If we'll just give him something. You don't want to change. Be honest. He already knows that. But ask him to change your wants. <laughs> ask him to change your wants so that you want to change. He'll start wherever you are at. Nail that to the cross. And that's what brings about a love that changes us, transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. And then when we're done with that, when you, after you've nailed this to the cross, then I invite you to go to the sides, and there are communion tables at the, uh, alongside the wall, and there's one uh, gluten-free table behind the, uh, the, the sound thing there in the middle. And, um, and then you take the sign of the covenant. This is the, the memory of the Last Supper where Jesus just took the bread that they were going to eat. He said, this bread, ordinary bread, because God always uses the ordinary. He said, this br- bread is my body, which is to be broken for you. And so as often as you take this bread and eat it together, do it in remembrance of me. Remember what it costs God to have this right relationship with us. And then he took the cup, which is an ordinary cup, and he said, this cup is the cup of the new and everlasting covenant. But this cup is my blood, which is to be shed for you. So when you take this cup and drink it together, do it in remembrance of me. This is what's called the sign of the covenant. It's a way for us to remember concretely the God that we are in covenant with, what God did to be in a covenant relationship with us, and it represents what God calls us to aspire to be, to live the same kind of life of self-sacrificial love. Um, after everyone has done nailing on the cross and there's a little bit of space, if you want to come forward and, and pray up here more, feel free to do that. But let's let God, the Holy Spirit, just really reveal to us the dark stuff that needs to be nailed. And let's let and ask God to make very clear to us the beauty of the voice that announces our forgiveness and the beauty of the God who inspires us and motivates us with a love that compels us to live for him. Father, we ask now you come as we go to worship you again and make the reality of the cross in its ugliness and in its beauty more real to us than maybe we've ever experienced before. Lord, show forth your beauty in a way that makes our hearts so grateful and so full of love and gives us a fire that wants to passionately live for you, wants to genuinely leave all of our junk on the cross. Come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. You guys can go to the communion tables first, if you like, or the cross. Your choice. Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all
Look, you can get the camera to look at this. It's really quite a sight. But see, that is where we would be if it was not for him doing this. We're, we're covered like this. And Scripture says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we could be made the righteousness of God in him. It doesn't just wipe us clean. He gives us his righteousness. It's a great exchange. We give him ashes. He gives us beauty. We give him condemnation. He gives us salvation. Do you agree that he's worthy? Do you agree he's worthy? Everything the enemy had ever had on us was nailed to the cross, Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, 14 and 15. He took everything written against us, nailed it to the cross, and thereby made an open mockery of the principalities and powers who are always trying to accuse and condemn and drive the children of God in the ground. Amen. Amen. We've never tried to pretend like we need to give a spoiler alert on how this thing turns out. So trying to stay sorrowful all the way to Easter. We know Easter's coming. You can't separate the two anymore. Uh, the disciples that first, that first Friday, Friday they were in a different spot. But uh, we praise God for both the ugliness of the cross that reflects our sin. And we need to see that because otherwise we'll never see the beauty of the cross, which reflects his holiness and his grace and his mercy, loving us just as we are. That's the best news in the universe. Best news in the universe. So, Father, as we leave this place, I pray we do it with, as a people who are just have a, a gratitude that to some degree reflects uh, the beauty of what you've done on the cross. I don't think our eyes are even a little bit open, but give us revelation of where we'd be without you and therefore a gratitude for where we are because of you and let it affect how we live for you. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Go out in his love. That's beautiful.